Well, I had said some time ago that uh, Easter is not just one day. It's a whole season on the Christian calendar. It's why it's not wrong to say on Easter morning, Happy Resurrection Day, but we like to say Happy Easter because we are Easter people, and Easter is a whole season. And on the Christian calendar, we are now in the Eastertide season. And so we are talking through and Uh, 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 the implications of the resurrection. Resurrection has implications for our faith and our life uh, that touch almost every area of our walk with the Lord. And um, so we want to meditate and celebrate. Uh, Historically, the season of Lent, they would call 40 days of fasting, and the season of Easter was 40 days of feasting. And so 80 days around the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, now, it's good for us to know as this morning as we get into our, our, our message, uh, the Gospels talk about the resurrection. At, thank you. Excuse me. The Gospels talk about the resurrection, tell us the story of what happened, but the letters of Paul really unpack the theology of the resurrection. And if you've you've read Paul at any length, one of the things you notice is that Paul has a resurrection-based theology. He has a resurrection-based theology. And so when he begins many of his epistles, he'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus briefly, even just a brief statement. And he will often bookend what's in one of his epistles by saying something about new creation or us being new creatures. The resurrection and the new creation. And the reason for that is that the resurrection, in Paul's mind, has launched the new creation. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, victory over the grave, has launched the new creation. And so he sees redemption not as a rescue from creation, but as the renewal of creation. And this may seem like a fine point, but it's very important because it has a lot to do with the way you see your life in God in this current world. Because if you see this world as beyond redemption because it's dark and evil, you will be seeking escape. Right? He doesn't, but Paul's theology is not rescue from creation, it's the renewal of creation. Not rescue, but renewal. And along with the renewal of creation, the world has been reorganized or reoriented, as it were, along a whole new set of realities. And Paul is very aware that when he talks about these things, he is speaking to people who are looking with their natural eyes, saying, it doesn't really look like it. But Paul is announcing the beginning of a new age, a new creation in which the world has been reoriented because of the resurrection along a whole new set of realities. The events of Jesus' death and resurrection mean that the world's a different place. It means that the world has changed in certain profound ways, and that means our life in God has changed in certain profound ways. The resurrection changes the world for believers because it launches a new creation. 
The old creation is characterized by sin and death, but the new creation is characterized by life in the spirit. And so, so much of what he says is, contrasts those two points. Now, I don't typically like preaching a, a passage or preaching a sermon without a solid, concrete passage. This morning, we're going to move through a few different passages of Scripture. But that's the beauty of Paul's theology is his thought is like a, like a thread throughout all of his epistles. And so you can, you can pick and choose from his epistles because the themes that he talks about are repeated over and over and over again. So you can see something in Galatians, Romans, and 1 Corinthians, and he's saying almost virtually the exact same thing in a different way. And so Paul is really good at synthesizing his theology. So I mentioned that the old creation was characterized by death and sin, the new creation characterized by life in the spirit. And that life in the spirit means, number one, that ethnic boundaries belong to the old creation. Thank you, Jacob. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. No one heard the, 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 my first point at all. They just saw him walking up there. That was much cuter. Uh, so number one, one of the things, one of the new realities of the, the, the new creation that is breaking into this present evil age is that ethnic boundary markers are no longer relevant. In Ephesians 2.11, he writes, At one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, were separated from Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.16, From now on, therefore, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. Therefore, is that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In the ancient world, ethnic boundary markers were everything. Your ethnicity and your nationality told people what gods you worshipped. Uh, that's, that is kind of true today. It, it can be true today. If you live in the Middle East and you live in an, an Arab country, you might, there's a good chance you're Muslim. Not always, though. If you live in Western Europe or the United States, there's a good chance you come from one of the Christian traditions. That's not always true, though. In certain parts of the world, it's a really good mix. We have friends from uh, Malaysia who, who say that I mean, someone could be a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian. It's just, it's just a mix. But in the ancient world, your ethnicity told people what God you worship. Now, the Romans and the and the Greeks belittled the Jews because the Jews were a small minority of people in a small strip of land. And as far as the Romans and the Greeks were concerned, their God was small. You're a small, powerless nation. Your God must be small and powerless. And that, that's how it worked in the ancient world. The Jews degraded and belittled the pagan Romans for not being descendants of Abraham because they were not circumcised, and therefore outside of the family of God. So you can see the tensions that exist in the ancient world, religiously, over these boundary markers. Now Paul, in this very first verse, he affirms that in the old creation, this does exclude a person. He says at one time, Ephesians 2.11, you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision, and you were separated from God. So he affirms it. But the resurrection 
launches a new kind of existence where those old ethnic boundary markers are no longer the criterion, I'm going to use this word a lot during this sermon, criterion for being part of the covenant people of God. Those ethnic boundary markers are no longer the criterion for being part of the covenant people of God, which means that in Christ, those old divisions no longer hold sway. And this is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.16, from now on, therefore, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard that passage before? How, okay, hands down. By a show of hands, how many of you actually knew what that meant? Yeah, it's difficult. Just a few people. And I don't say that to, to shame anyone. I say that, that, that that's kind of hard to grasp what Paul is saying. Paul says some difficult things. What does he mean from now on we don't regard anyone according to the flesh, and then he follows it up with the statement, but if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Whatever you were before your life in God is not the most important thing about you. Whatever identity, ethnically, racially, nationally, is not what we really care about as the people of God. That is not the criterion for judging whether someone is part of the family of God. And these are, this, is, this is maybe the first reality of the new creation. The first reality of the age to come that is already broken into the present because of the resurrection of Jesus is that ethnic boundary markers are no longer the standard of judging whether God loves someone or not. And that may seem like old hat to you. Like, well, yeah, we get that. But, but this, is, this is big time stuff for Paul to be saying in the first century because that was not a reality. That was not a reality for people back then. And Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In the new creation, one is a descendant of Abraham if he is in Christ. Abraham's promised heir. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait, I thought Isaac was the promised heir. One of the things I love about Paul is Paul radically reformulates a lot of the Old Testament Theology. In fact, a first century Jewish scribe and scholar would have read Paul's letters and say, that guy's a terrible theologian. But Paul and Jesus before him, because they're empowered by the Spirit to see with precision what God is really up to, they take these Old Testament ideas and concepts and they rework them. They rework them. And he says, actually... It wasn't even Isaac all along that was the promised heir of Abraham. It was Christ. And whoever is in Christ is an heir of Abraham who God's first covenant was made with. And this is good news for us. As people living in a fractured uh, world divided by ethnic and racial divisions, it's a good word for us too. It's a word of rebu rebuke and reproof and challenge for us not to regard people according to their fleshly identities, which is really their life in Adam. The old creation. But in the new creation, the only thing we're really concerned about is, is this person a new creature in Christ? 
their skin color, their, their culture, cultural and ethnic identities are not the most important thing. It's, is this person a new creature in Christ? And if they're not, what, what do we need to proclaim to them so that faith might stir in them? Is this person a new creature? Therefore, tribalism and racism are a part of the old creation. Now, you might say, well, so much for the old creation because there's a lot of it going on in the world we live in right now. The old creation, the new creation, is not a, is not a time marker. There are two realities that are existing side by side. One is dying and the other is coming more and more through the proclamation of the gospel. And so the old creation is characterized by tribalism and racism. It's part of the old creation. It's part of the old humanity. And we know that it may be one of the church's biggest sins, that at one time its theology was so rotten that it saw no problem enslaving other Christians because they had different skin color. Right? For all the books written through the centuries, like there was a segment of the church that its theology was so rotten that it thought it was justified in enslaving other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, on the other side, the flip side of this coin is identity politics. And Mark Galley, writing for Christianity Today, says, Adherents to identity politics have no interest in broad-based politics because they believe that no other group can empathize with them sufficiently to truly understand their group. Only one born into the group identity or, one, or who becomes woke through a kind of revelation truly knows the score. In the new creation... Perceived categories of inferiority, though, whether it's ethnic or racial or power dynamics or socioeconomic strata, won't exist. And so this is this glorious reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that these things not only don't have as much power as they used to, but their power is daily weakening as the gospel is proclaimed. I think one of the things we have to ask ourselves as Christians as we think about what this means for us, that ethnic boundary markers uh, no longer um, you know, are the criterion, we have to ask ourselves as we think about what it means not to regard people according to the flesh, where, where do I land personally in this kingdom ethic, this ethic of the new creation? Do I identify with people outside my ethnic or racial community? Do I have friends who don't look like me? And I don't mean acquaintances, I mean real friends. Do I move toward others who are different than me, other than me, that I don't identify with? Am I moving toward people like that? When is the last time I had someone outside of my ethnic comfort zone over for dinner? These are good questions. Revelation 7 has this vision of this beautiful image before the throne of God in heaven. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. The vision of the new creation coming to fruition and kind of reaching its zenith and pinnacle is that all of these people who are divided by ethnicity or language will be one. And it really is a hearkening back to sins 
profound effect on the world. In fact, I think the, the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, maybe most of you are probably familiar with it, is to demonstrate that the divisions that come through ethnicity or even language was not the way it was originally meant to be. That's what that means. It's not that other cult, like, the, like various diverse cultures aren't beautiful. They are. There are a lot of beauty in all the different cultures, so don't hear me saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is it originally was not the way it was meant to be. We were meant to be one people, one race of people, united. And so the gospel and the new creation retrieves that. So that's number one. But secondly, the new creation launched by the resurrection means there is freedom from the law and worldly powers. You may say, what does that got to do with the whole ethnic boundary things? You're going to see it in a minute. The second thing launched by the resurrection means there is freedom from the law and worldly powers. Galatians 3.23. And, and just before I read these, these passages here, Paul does not talk about the law equally in all of his writings. He deals with the law primarily in Romans and primarily in Galatians because of the tension between Jewish and Gentile believers in both of those communities and the influences of the, the law-keeping Jewish community, which was kind of spilling over into the Gentile Christian community. And this is what he says to the Galatians who are tempted by Judaizers, people who are saying, no, 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 you got to be Jewish, you got to be circumcised, you got to keep the law. Galatians 3.23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Captive. 4.2, Galatians 4.2, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Galatians 5 and 2, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. The law was intended only to function until Christ arrived. If you don't know the history of the story, kind of like the redemptive story arc of the Bible, you'll think that Paul just doesn't like the law, and that's not the case. What Paul wants to do is set the record straight about what the law is for and when it served its purpose. God made a promise to Abraham before the law. The law came after that promise, existed for a while, but was only meant to be temporary. It had a restraining and a guiding function. And here's why. The old, the old creation was characterized by sin and death, and it had to be held in check by the law. If you've read the Law of Moses, you know that there are some punishments for, you know, doing your neighbor wrong or the acts of violence or hatred in your heart or unfaithfulness to God because that old age was characterized by sin and death and it had to be held in check by something that was very stern and strict, and that was the law. Law wasn't bad, but it couldn't produce life. It was holding people in check. The new creation, though, is characterized by life in the Spirit, and it's held in check by love. The new creation is held, it is characterized by life in the spirit and is held in check, not by rules and regulations, but by love because the law is functioning organically through the spirit's power in the heart where you want to love your neighbor. You want not to do something wrong against somebody. You, you don't want to commit acts of violence when the spirit's work is at work in you. In other words, since Christ, 
Abraham's promised seed has come, and we're liberated from the law's rules and regulations. People are set free by the truth of the gospel. It doesn't mean that the law has no ongoing impact and importance for us, but it means that in the sense of criterion before God to earn God's love, the law cannot be the grounds for our acceptance. We're freed from performance. We're freed from any criterion other than Jesus Christ. Again, the law's function was meant to be temporary. Apparently, there were some Arminians in the first century church in Galatia telling the believers that they really weren't living up to their potential if they weren't circumcised, if they didn't practice a rigid, unbending Sabbath-keeping and observance of the kosher food laws. The Galatians were flirting with the idea of returning to the law, and this is the temptation that every Christian at some point runs into. It may not be keeping kosher. It may not be circumcision, but we are always tempted to feel more accepted by God, not because of Christ, but because there is something we're doing that other Christians aren't doing. It almost doesn't matter what that is. For Paul, it was circumcision, kosher food laws, and Sabbath keeping. For us, it may be something completely different. I mean, I can fill in the blank at just the things that I have seen in churches from Christians who have, for the most part, really good theology. But there is a tendency to separate ourselves from other Christians to feel more accepted by God. And this is really the threat to the gospel that Paul is talking about. Paul is essentially saying, what's wrong with you people? To the Galatians who are flirting with returning to the law. He says, before faith came... We were held captive under the law. Why why do you want to go back to those rules and regulations? Now, the Greek word for faith is pistis, and it means trust. It's the same word as trust. So to believe and have faith is the same word to have trust in God, to trust God. And I interpret that to mean before we trusted in Christ for salvation, we were prisoners, we were held captive. Galatians 4 and 3, he says we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And the Greek word for enslaved is stoika. Stoikeia, excuse me. And it refers to the powers that control this world. There's a lot of scholarly debate about what stoikeia means. But it generally means the powers that control this world and is often referred to as demonic powers. This is how serious Paul is about Christians who may otherwise have really good theology, but think because there is something they particularly do means that God loves and accepts them more. And Paul is saying, that's demonic, because it does not belong to the age that is coming. It belongs to the old age where we try to set criterion and ways to separate and judge each other based on different things that we do or observe or practices. He's really saying that legalism is demonic, because it denies the power of the gospel by promoting a performance-based religiosity, which is exactly what Christianity is not. Every other world religion is performance-based. 
Every other system of belief is based off of certain rules and regulations that you keep that mean that God means that God accepts you and God accepts you and loves you. These do things, these five pillars, these five observances, whatever they are. And Paul is saying, no. You got it all wrong. He says this is enslavement because it promotes performance-based acceptance. It essentially tells people God will love you if you try harder. I was in a church just the past week and uh, visited a church and... um, and the pastor preached a sermon from Mark 9, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a pretty good sermon. I try, you know, one of the things that reform people we can do is be critical, really critical, and I'm like, you know, no, Jordan, no, you're not going to do that. So, you know, I visited this church, and I'm just listening, you know, and uh, I'm like, you know, I'm going to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. And the sermon was okay. It was from Mark 9, 42, where Jesus says, he talks about sin as an offense. He says, don't offend these little ones whose faith is fragile, because if you do, it's better for a millstone to be thrown around your neck, you cast into the ocean. The second next move is Jesus says, and sin in offense, if it's an offense in your own members, whether your eye, your hand, or your foot, cut it off, remove it. That's how serious you should be about sin because it destroys and it snuffs out your witness. And then he says, if you continue to let sin have control over you, you're like salt without any savor, right? You're not good for anything, right? And it wasn't a bad sermon, but he ended it with essentially saying, and this is my only critique, okay? So let's try harder, guys. He didn't say those words, but I what I heard from him was essentially, so let's try harder, because Jesus is worth it. And I just went, no, no, that is not the message. And I thought, because it was a large room of people, maybe there were 700 people in the room, and I thought, if this is what they're hearing normally, regularly, if this is where this guy's sermons land, about 20% of these people are going to be washed out of their faith because of exhaustion. Because no matter how hard you try, you fall short. No matter how hard I try, I fall short. And so if the message is just, try harder because Jesus is worth it, what happens if after trying and trying and trying, I can't measure up to that perfect standard of righteousness? You give up, and people do give up. In fact, it may be the case that the gospel message is not landing on the ears rightly of people in our country, and people are falling away from the faith in droves because they are hearing everything but the idea of trusting that Christ fulfilled God's perfect demands for us. And faith and salvation is trusting and believing that we are in Christ, that perfect law keeper. We are in Christ, the one who is perfectly obedient to God's rules and regulations. And that being in Christ and trusting in him, the one who overcame sin and temptation, that we're saved because of that. Only our identification with Christ, the truly perfect one, is what saves us. That is the only message that can sustain faith in a world that, is, that drives you to a performance-based idea of God's love. And so the question is not, though the message is not, so let's try harder. The question is, how do we become new creations? 
The question is, are you trusting in Christ every single day, even when you fail miserably? Are you trusting in Christ, not your own sense of performance? Because if the sole defining criterion is faith in Christ, then we're truly free from any system of performance and measuring up that would enslave us. God loves us on account of Christ. Our faith and trust is that God sees his righteousness on our account. I just want to say to you this morning, if there is something you do that makes you feel particularly proud that you are doing something that your brothers and sisters aren't doing, not that the, the act itself is bad, I just want to tell you to beware. Like, just, just watch out. Because that's where religious pride comes in, and that's where the gospel is denied. And the thing that you're doing that you think that God loves you more because you're doing that. Again, it may be a good thing. It may be a very good thing. But just like the Galatians, who weren't truly in step with the gospel, they rightly deserved a word of reproof. So if you're exhausted at your failures and sins, and you feel like giving up time and time again, well, you can have confidence in Christ's perfect obedience, that Christ obeyed on your behalf. In fact, God is not even keeping the score anymore. He's like, look, you're all in sin. That's what Romans 3.23 is all about. Look, all of the ethnic boundary markers of, of who is part of the family of God, who isn't part of the family of God, that doesn't work anymore because everybody's a sinner. All of the rule and regulation keeping that was once a boundary marker of who was in and who was out, well, that doesn't work anymore because you're all in sin. That's what Romans 3 is all about. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're all in sin. You're all sinners. You're no better than this person, and that person's no better than you, and you all need grace. You all need Christ. We all need Christ. I need Christ. And it may seem like a cliche, but he perfectly kept the law. And his perfect obedience is what God sees when he sees us, because by faith we're saved. We're saved by faith in Christ, the perfectly faithful one. Are you trusting in Christ for your salvation this morning? Only Jesus conquered sin and death and asks us simply to live by faith in the Son of God. And I end my sermon this morning with Galatians 2.20. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you and pray that you would help us to fully grasp more and more every day the implications of the resurrection. That Christ's perfect life of obedience did not end in his death, but was sent out into the world 
as the power of salvation for those of us who believe and trust simply by faith, by your grace. That the new creation was launched at the resurrection and we are new creations because we have our movement, our being, our very lives in the one who conquered sin and its consequences, death and the grave. Father, we pray that we may be found in Christ that we may walk and live in him, that we may see our lives in him. And whatever life we lived before faith, O oh God, we would see as being dead. And our lives now, our lives united to the one who lives forevermore. In Christ's name we pray, amen.